Last week, we saw in the Gospel of Matthew how the Magi, the wise men, came in search of Jesus because they'd studied Daniel. And how when they found Jesus, they worshipped him and departed with, with great joy. Now, this isn't an exam, but I do hope that you remember some of what I was saying last week, because in a sense it's the prelude to what I want to share today, partly because chapter 2 follows chapter 1, and so that's not rocket science, but it just makes the sequence work. Last week, in passing, I mentioned that Herod the Great, as he became known, responded very differently to the birth of Jesus. And that's our starting point this morning. Herod had no real interest in biblical prophecies. At least, not until he thought that they might have an adverse effect on him personally. He was only ever interested in himself. And the coming of the wise men to find the one born king of the Jews freaked him out. But to understand why a newborn baby could be seen as a threat to this powerful despot, we need to understand a little of his background. Now, the words that the wise men used were in fact Herod's own official title. He was called King of the Jews. But actually he could never legitimately be that simply because he wasn't Jewish. He was an Idumean. That is to say, he was an Edomite, or he was a descendant of Esau, not a descendant of Jacob. Some years later, Jesus spoke about Herod Antipas, Herod the Great's son, and described him as that fox. And actually that was a perfect description of the whole of this family. Herod the Great rose to power amid an elaborate 20-year series of political intrigues. He came from a wealthy, powerful family and entered power politics when his father, who was another Antipas, appointed him as the governor of Galilee. And Herod kowtowed to Rome to gain their support and their, their favour. In 40 BC, there was a battle between his forces and those of Persia, and he was defeated. But he escaped with his life and fled to Rome. And while he was there, the Senate crowned him as king of the Jews, king of Judea. Sometime later, he returned to Israel, and this time at the head of a Roman army. Eventually he took Jerusalem and then started to consolidate his grip on power. But you see, his claim to the throne was so weak that whether he had to or not, he certainly did set about eliminating every other legitimate claimant. And with the help of Mark Antony, yes, John was talking about the historicity of Christianity in the beginning to the service. Mark Antony we've all heard of, if for no other reason because of the film Cleopatra, but um, totally historical. 
Mark Antony supported Herod in this, in this massacre, really, in which he killed all possible rivals and their supporters. Fifty of the most prominent citizens of Judea were slaughtered. Some of them, well, had been, I can't say were, close friends of Herod. Included in the list was his 18-year-old high priestly brother-in-law, his sister's husband, his sister's second husband, his mother-in-law, and even his second wife. So I think you can kind of gather that he wasn't a nice guy. But he certainly had the political guile to always back the winners in the various power struggles within the Roman Empire. And that was a skill absolutely vital to his remaining in power. Because he was utterly dependent upon Roman backing. And after years of slaughter and intrigue, battles and struggles, he came to enjoy a period of peace and quiet. And during that time he undertook many truly impressive building projects. Even today, archaeologists interested in architecture and even architects interested in history are amazed at some of the projects that he successfully undertook. They included the temple. And all of this civil engineering is the reason why he was called Herod the Great. It actually had nothing to do with his character. But those who rule by intrigue can never sleep easily in their beds. And as Herod's sons became older, they started to become a threat to him. He actually had ten wives, and seven of his sons made it to adulthood. And of course the various wives wanted their son to be the last man standing. And so plots were hatched at the very heart of Herod's family, resulting in the execution of three of his sons and his brother. The wise men arrived at the precise moment when these plots were at their height. And they asked him a question that Herod would not have wanted to hear. Can we see the baby who is born king of the Jews. It was God's timing, but it was hardly an auspicious moment. Such was Herod's devious nature and consuming obsession with power that it's hardly surprising that Herod reacted as he did to the news from these these kingmakers from Persia that there was one born king of the Jews, the Messiah. Kingmakers from where? From Persia. Remember, it was the Persians who defeated him some 30, 35 years earlier. So there was already a grudge there. Herod had already fought numerous military battles to secure his throne. And murdered many close associates, including his own family, in order to keep it. No wonder Matthew chapter 2 And verse 3 tells us, when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled 
and all Jerusalem with him. You bet Jerusalem would be troubled. How much more blood was about to be shed? We all know what Herod did next. He called the wise men and told them to go and make a careful search for the child. And when you found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. With hindsight, we know Herod's real purpose was not worship, but the elimination of yet another threat to his throne. And when the wise man, men failed to return, he knew he'd been duped and he just flew into a rage. Verse 16, he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem, two years old or less. Herod's response to the birth of Jesus certainly wasn't worship. It was apprehension, fear. It was hatred, antagonism, anger, murder. In recent years, skeptics have dismissed this whole thing, the slaughter of the innocents, as being an unhistorical legend. They take as their ground the fact that the contemporary Jewish Roman historian Josephus makes no mention of it, nor does any other historian contemporary to the events. However, their approach is flawed because, you see, they have fallen into the trap of believing and claiming that the medieval retellings of this event reliably fill in the detail of the biblical account. But in fact, those retellings grossly exaggerate the event. One version, which comes from Constantinople, puts the number of innocent children killed at 14,000. Another one from Syria puts it far higher, at 64,000. But these figures just don't stack up. They require us to assume a population for Bethlehem as being a little bit more than metropolitan Belfast, at three quarters of a million, all the way up to about one and a half times the population of Northern Ireland, at three million. These exaggerations certainly are the stuff of legend and have no historical value. The highly respected academic W.F. Albright, who was the leading biblical archaeologist until his death in 1970, stated that Bethlehem at the time of Herod would have had a population of about 300. The whole Roman province of Judea-Palestine, which is about twice the size of Northern Ireland, only ever had a population just about reaching two and a half million. I'm with Albright. I'm certainly not with the legends. But please, don't get me wrong. One innocent child murdered is a horrific charity. But the number of male children in the town aged two or under 
would have been in single figures. Six, seven maybe. So this certainly was not a newsworthy event for Josephus, who may actually have never even heard that it happened. Even if he had, although he was a Jew, he was a Roman sympathizer, writing for Greeks and Romans, not Jews. And those two groups, the Greeks and the Romans, cared not a whit about infant deaths. For the Greeks... Their form of birth control was infanticide. And in Rome, fathers had the legal right to leave newborn babies on the floor so that and until they died. With that cultural background, together with the violent political instability of this region around the time of Herod's death, Josephus would have viewed this local tragedy as utterly insignificant and a total irrelevance for his audience. I believe it's totally biblical, totally historical, totally true. Because, you see, it was utterly consistent with Herod's known character and his approach to government. He had no qualms about killing his own family and friends, so he wouldn't have given a second thought about killing a handful of babies in an obscure village south of Jerusalem in order to keep his throne for himself or his favourite son. It was, in fact, one of the last dastardly deeds he ever committed. Josephus does write that as Herod lay, dying, racked with intense pain. Many of Herod's rather more sensitive, wiser contemporaries asserted that Herod's suffering was so intense because God was punishing him for his extreme wickedness. But Herod wasn't the only one to figure in this part of the narrative. There's another group of people in Jerusalem who are half hidden in the background of this chapter, but whose response was every bit as bad as that of Herod. And I'm referring to the religious leaders. They must have known something of great religious significance had been occurring in the previous couple of years. One of their number, a priest, had seen an angel whilst ministering in the temple. And Luke chapter 1 and verse 22 tells us everyone knew that Zechariah had seen a vision. We know, of course, that he was the father of the man who we'd eventually know as John the Baptist. Zechariah had emerged dumb from his duty in the holy place. Possibly the only time in his whole life that he had this honor. But while he was there, he had doubted the angel's word. And the angel, for his unbelief, struck him dumb. And he only got his voice back when he controversially controversially agreed that the name of his son was to be John, as a 
Gabriel had commanded. And I would simply want to ask, is it really feasible that the religious leaders knew nothing of such a remarkable remarkable event as this, which had taken place in very recent memory in their own headquarters, the temple, especially when there had been no known divine intervention in Israel for some 400 years. After the wise men left, Herod called in the religious leaders because he knew vaguely that the Jewish scriptures contained a prophecy giving the exact place where Messiah, the true inheritor of the throne on which he sat, the throne of King David, and that there was a record in the scriptures of where he would be born. He had little, if any, biblical knowledge. So he called in the professors of religious affairs to find out precisely what their Bible had to say about a coming king. And verse 2 gives the sense that they didn't go away and spend hours, days, weeks searching the scriptures to find out. But they answered him there and then, quoting the prophet Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2 telling Herod that the promised king would be born in Bethlehem. Now remember that not all of these religious leaders were particularly godly men. In fact, the high priestly family were really secular, wealthy power mongers rather than devout priests. Even so, many of the teachers of the law were among the brightest and best minds in all Israel, being the most biblically informed men in the nation. Academics, clergy, who devoted their lives to studying the scriptures which they knew, loved, and took to be God's word. They'd all of them memorized vast sections of the Bible, So there's no shadow of a doubt that they knew masses of information about the coming Messiah. And that all leads me to ask, if they knew so much about the coming one, to be born king of the Jews, including his birthplace, why didn't they go to Bethlehem? It was only 10 kilometers away. When I was living in far sunnier climes than these, I frequently walked that far before breakfast. So if they wanted to get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, they could have done it in half a day, even if they were walking at a dignified, sedate pace with servants around them. And they would have known just how long and arduous a journey these Gentile wise men had made. So why didn't these Jewish religious leaders go? Or at very least, send someone else to go to Bethlehem and check it out for themselves. These theologians knew so much. They were so near. And yet they did so little. I'm tempted to say nothing. 
Why? Apart from pride about their status in society, which I'll return to in a moment, one dangerous reason is that they were obsessed with learning for learning's sake. They devoted themselves to studying about the truth, but had long since ceased to embrace and lived, live by the truth. The reason I say it's a danger is because we face that same danger ourselves. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about people in the church who are forever inquiring and getting information but are never able to arrive at a recognition of the truth or the knowledge of the truth. I believe it's a real problem for today's Western church. We have so many courses, so many books, so many teaching materials, so many resources that we can easily make the pursuit of a better head knowledge about Christianity. The goal of our Christian lives. Rather than becoming disciples who are more like the Lord. When I was studying theology half a century ago now, there were students around me who frankly saw it as just an act academic exercise. Absolutely no different from if they'd been studying history or classics or economics. And today many university professors of theology have no faith of their own. They don't see that when Christianity is just a subject to scrutinize, it's of no benefit to the lives of its students. A dear friend of ours who went home to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, she'd been a missionary in Polynesia. And she was horrified when she discovered that her Christian niece was studying theology at a university in England whose theology professor was such a skeptic that she denied the very existence of Jesus and had no religious faith of her own. And whether it's in our day or whether it's amongst the Jewish religious leaders of first century Jerusalem, we need to see that this is arrogant intellectual pride based on assumptions already made. Let me show you how it pans out here. A delegation of high-end foreign intelligentsia turn up in Jerusalem, where the temple is, where the best rabbinical seminaries are to be found. But these guys ignore those places, and instead they go to the detested Edomite king and tell him, rather than the Jewish intelligentsia, They've come to see the newborn king prophesied about because of the auspicious rising of a star 
in the east. And this had led them to search for a baby born king of the Jews. The pride of these elite religious leaders was seriously dented. And with a knee-jerk reaction asked, what are these goyim, Gentiles that is, what are they doing here? What's this story all about? They think they're clever, but they're ignorant. Because they're not the people of the book. They're not the people of the covenants. They're not of the right race. They're just not kosher. What could these foreigners possibly know about the coming of our Messiah, the Lord's anointed? And as for this star business, Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17 tells of a star. In Balak's invitation to Balaam to come and curse Israel, Balaam's finest or- final orig- oracle speaks of a star, but that's not a sign in the skies about a baby's birth. It's the promise of our conquering messianic king who will defeat Gentiles like these goyim. They are so not right. My old theology professor, Jim Packer, used to speak of three prides. Pride of place, pride of race, and pride of grace. Adding that pride of grace was the most pernicious. This know-it-all reaction shows to what extent the religious leaders were steeped in their pride and how their religion was not a living walk of godly hope and expectation. But just dry theory underpinning their pride of race and grace. Not one of them responded positively to the Magi and their understanding of the Lord, who these religious leaders professed to serve, and his promises in the word that they studied. They were just 10 kilometers from the Lord's Christ. Yet none of them had enough faith in his heart or fire in his belly to go and check out the possibility that the prophecies about their long-awaited Messiah were actually being filled in their own lifetime. They were so busy studying the Bible as a book of ritual ritual and ethics and a religious philosophy that protected their national identity that they couldn't see God was actually doing what he'd said he would. It's perilous to be so obsessed with theorizing, theology even, that we totally miss truth and reality. But don't lose sight of the fact that these men were amongst the most outwardly religious and if not the nicest, certainly the most fastidious people in Israel. This is bad news for good people. It's possible to live a good life but totally miss God. It's possible to have masses of information about God and religion and morality but still miss the truth that God 
incarnate came looking for loving faith, not masses of head knowledge. And of course, the rubber hit the road 30 years later when the colleagues of these men could no longer ignore the one born in Bethlehem during their lifetime, who had come preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They didn't recognize their longed-for Messiah, but rejected him and sought to discredit him, plotting and eventually conspiring to have him crucified. At last, they thought, they'd managed to silence him so that they can continue in their old ways. But that's another story. They tried to dismiss Jesus, but he wouldn't go away. However, as Matthew continues, we again meet Joseph, the adoptive father of our Lord. In chapter 1, his hopes and dreams had turned to dust as when he discovered that Mary was pregnant and not by him. Everything seemed to be a disaster, a nightmare. But then in a dream, the Lord reassured Joseph that this was all part of his plan and purposes for mankind. Not that that was the end of Joseph's troubles or dreams. On three further occasions in the course of just 11 verses, the Lord speaks to him in dreams. Now, to be honest, I think we would find Joseph's experiences the kind of nightmare that would leave us sweating in the cold of night and trying to catch our breath as our hearts raced. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, An angel appeared to him in a dream and told him to get up and leave town because Herod had dispatched his assassins to search out and kill the little boy who was growing up in Joseph and Mary's home in Bethlehem. And just as he had done previously, Joseph reacted in instant faith and obedience, never once questioning the reality of the vision in his dream or the Lord's goodness. Dream or nightmare, Joseph does as the angel commands, taking Mary and Jesus, once more becoming a refugee and now fleeing to Egypt. I can't help but notice the parallel that Joseph, the descendant of David, was much like his namesake, Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was also given the gift of dreaming and interpreting dreams. Joseph, son of Jacob, had foreseen in a dream that his whole family would come to him and bow down and serve him. But the Lord had a far greater purpose than Joseph's vindication, intended that that through his being in Egypt for a season, He would be the instrument that would save the whole people of God and give them a future. And so in the provision and purposes of God, this second Joseph would also be the instrument that would protect the purposes of God and thereby make possible the salvation of the whole world. 
I'm sure that Joseph, son of David, knew that Herod was a paranoid megalomaniac who'd do anything, even kill an innocent child, to maintain his grip on power. And so he obeyed readily. Clearly the Lord had this situation in hand because he also spoke to the wise men in a dream, warning them, don't go back to Herod. In his megalomania, Herod sought to control his own destiny and that of countless pawns in his power games. But he couldn't control dreams. Neither the dream of the wise men nor the dream of Joseph. Maybe that's why the Lord is appearing to seekers in lands that are closed to the gospel, even in our day. For even when they bring us a scary scenario, dreams have the ability to stir us out of our complacency and take action. That's precisely what happened to Joseph. Is it too much to say that is how Jesus was spurred? And the Lord's purposes were not derailed. We might feel a sense of injustice on behalf of the rest of the children of Bethlehem. Those half a dozen or so boys of two or less whose lives became disposable in Herod's ruthless quest for power. But sadly the stark reality is that too many inhabitants of the world that Jesus was born into knew little of compassion or integrity. And tragically, our modern world has not really progressed in humanity or kind-heartedness. Children are still sacrificed to satisfy man's darkest desires. Nevertheless, Part of what Jesus' resurrection guarantees is that the justice of God will be satisfied and innocent victims will be vindicated. But we are still in the time between the announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand and its final, complete establishment on the day of the Lord. The remaining verses of chapter 2 show us the Lord twice more directing Joseph's steps so he could protect his family. The Hebrews who went to Egypt at the time of his earlier namesake weren't supposed to stay there forever. But they got comfortable and they forgot about God's plans for them. And I just wonder, is that maybe why the Lord deliberately prompted this Joseph to make sure he stayed in line with God's purposes and then when he returned and wondered where they should live the Lord I'm sure in answer to the prayers of Joseph and Mary directed them to the place where the family could be safe Nazareth Matthew chapter 2 is full of contrasting responses to the Lord. And I believe it should prompt us to look at our own response to him. 
Are we like the wise men? Heaven forbid that we're like Herod. But for all churchgoers, there's a real risk that we could be like the religious leaders. Knowing a lot of the right things, but not allowing Jesus to be Lord of our lives, to make a difference in our lives. The wise men sought him, found him, and it was a thing of exceeding great joy. He changed their lives and they became true worshippers of God. Joseph, who came into the whole story as one who already knew the Lord, responded to God. Even in the darkest moments, with trust and instantaneous obedience. My prayer today is that we all of us might know the joy of the wise men and the faith and obedience of Joseph. So let us this year celebrate the feast of Christmas with faith and joy in our hearts. Amen.